Well, let's get started. Good to see all of you today, and welcome to a couple of new guys here. Good to see all of you. Hope you're doing well. We're studying the book of Galatians, so let me, Fred has asked me to do a summary of that, so I, I will do that. I'm going to pick up with verse 10, if I could. But Paul writes the book of Galatians after his first missionary journey. He came to know Christ in the Damascus Road in late AD 35, early AD 36. Thirteen years later, he was called out in the Church of Antioch in the missionary journey that we know as the first missionary journey. It was largely in the Roman province of southern Galatia. He goes back to Antioch and reports on his missionary movement, and as he's reporting, he gets word that a group of individuals, we will call them Judaizers. That's not a biblical word, but it summarizes what they taught. A group of Judaizers were following Paul around those cities in Galatia. And if you go back to Acts chapter 13, you see cities like Iconium, Pisidia, Lystra, Derbe, and others. Those are the cities that report back to Paul, or he hears about these cities, that these Judaizers are coming in and saying, don't believe Paul. He's not really an apostle. And if he's not really an apostle, he doesn't have apostolic authority. And if he doesn't have apostolic authority, you don't have to listen to him. And besides, what he was preaching is really wrong. This free grace gospel that you come to faith in Christ and you understand that Christ fulfilled the law is nonsense. In order to have a complete salvation, you must not only put your faith in this Christ. You must keep the law. You must circumcise your boys on the eighth day. You must observe the Sabbath rigorously. You must keep a number of the feast days. In other words, to have a complete, I'll use Paul's words, to have a complete justification and a complete sanctification, you must observe the law. Well, when Paul gets word of this, he comes unglued, and he fires off this letter in the early fall of AD 49. It is his first letter. Uh, at the same time, and I mentioned this last week, do a few things on the board, but at the same time, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, has written an epistle, a letter, a little bit earlier, we're not quite sure there, about 45, 46 AD, where he also is writing to the churches, not in the same church as Paul is, but he's writing about this matter of justification. But James, in chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 14, utters a very controversial statement compared to Paul. He says we are justified by works, whereas Paul argues in Galatians, chapter 3 and 4, we're justified by faith. So we're going to be studying these two books that seem to be contradicting one another. They're not, but we will wait till we get to this uh, section, chapter 3, before we deal with some of the comparisons. The first part of the book, which we covered last week, uh, verses 1 through 3, is his greeting, his introduction. But I draw your attention, I'm not going to review all this, but I'll draw your attention to how Paul identifies himself, an apostle. The Greek word is apostolon, which means one sent out with authority, with the authority of the sender. Very common Greek word at that time, but when it's applied to the church, it's one sent out with the authority of the sender, who is Christ. It's an extraordinary claim for Paul to make. Was Paul one of the original 12? No. 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 And that's one of the reasons why these false teachers are saying this about Paul. <laughs> you know, Paul, he wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't part of that circle of 12, nor even of the 70. Remember, Jesus had concentric circles of followers, 12, well, actually three, the inner circle of three, James, Peter, and John, then the circle of 12, then the circle of 70, and the circle of 120, who were at Pentecost on May 24th, 8033. So all of that, Paul wasn't a man of any of that. Why should we believe him as an apostle? So what Paul's now going to do is he's going to defend his apostleship. And the thesis of that defense, and I'm skipping the rest of the introduction, but the thesis of that defense is in verse 11. So with the introduction now over, which is what we covered last week, he's, he begins to establish the theme or the thesis of the first two chapters. 
For I would have you, no, I'm reading now from chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, he's probably using that phrase because that would maybe, we think, have been the phrase that these Judaizers were using. This is a man-made gospel. This free grace that Paul is preaching is man-made. It's too simple. You don't have to do anything but believe. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to marry it. You don't have to keep the law. And he's saying, this is not made up. Why? Verse 12. You could translate that first word of verse 12. Because I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, you know, you, you and I read this 2,000 years later, and we kind of yawn. You know, oh, yeah, that's, that makes sense. But in the context of his writing this book, this is an extraordinary claim. Because he's specifically answering what these false teachers, these Judaizers, have been saying about him. Oh, this is man-made. It's made up. It, this isn't sourced in anything supernatural. Paul says, I did not receive this from anyone, nor was I taught it by anyone. Well, where'd you get it, Paul? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, as he is an apostle on, sent out one with the authority of Christ, what he's preaching is also sourced in, of course, Jesus is both the source and the agency of not only his apostolic authority, but of his message. So his message is sourced in Christ. So what he has to do is he has to prove that. Because anyone can say that, right? I mean, anyone can say, I don't say that. So what Paul is going to have to do is he's going to have to prove this. And if you, if you, I don't know if you follow that or, you know, the outline that Fred sent to you and so on, that, that is part of the notes here. But what we do is we organize through the end of chapter 2, Eight proofs. Paul itemizes eight proofs. In other words, his argument of why he is an apostle with the authority of Jesus Christ, plus the message he preached, is both sourced and has the agency through Christ. He has to prove that. So how's he going to prove that he didn't get it from man, it's not made up by man, but it's sourced in Christ? So this is what he's going to do. He's going to offer eight proofs. So your thought paper when we get to the end of chapter 8 is to summarize these eight proofs and then show me why you were convinced he's telling you the truth. 500 words or less, <laughs> font of 12, double-spaced. I don't know why I say waste my breath because you'll never do that anyway, but I just thought I'd inject a little humor. Did you have a question, Rob? Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I just think feeling that, that his colleagues, people are criticizing, our former colleagues, because he was a Pharisee. So they must have, I wonder if they felt somewhat betrayed by him. Hey, it was one of us, not one of these, off on this tangent. Well, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, whether or not all of them are personal colleagues, or rather I should say, as you said, former colleagues, we don't know. But the opposition was cer certainly sourced in that. I said, no, that's correct. They really, especially the... Again, I'll use that term, and it's not a biblical term, but it summarizes so, so well what they, what they stood for, these Judaizers. They would have been tied to the Pharisaic wing of Judaism, but also, and this is what's really important, some of them had embraced some of this teaching of Rabbi Jesus. They're not totally antithetical to it, opposed to it, or totally rejecting it. What they're saying is, we're not the rigid Pharisees which are killing Jesus as they organized the opposition to get Jesus crucified. And we're not these crazy free grace people of all. We're finding this middle position to preserve what was part of Judaism that we want to keep because we think we should. I mean, good night. You mean we have to turn our backs on 1,500 years of our tradition? I mean, that's really what they're saying. This is crazy. And that's why that's a total misunderstanding. And this, to me, this is still true to some extent for many Christians today. A total misunderstanding of what Jesus did in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He fulfilled the law. He completed the law. 
And because he fulfilled and completed the law, the law operationally has been replaced by something new. And that's, Jesus calls it this, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 calls it this, a new covenant. And so these guys that are kind of creating this sort of middle position, these Judaizers, Paul, Paul is so enraged at what they're doing because what are they doing? They're prostituting the gospel. They're making the gospel a combination of God, God sending his son plus human effort. If you want to have a full justification, a full sanctification, you got to keep the law. And Paul is just saying, no, you don't. <laughs> and he is enraged that this is gaining traction. And it, it, as you're going to see, we'll get a little bit later into it. The greatest, Paul, the greatest fear Paul has is that this is going to split the early church. You're going to have a divided church right out of the chute between these these Judaizer factions who are trying to find a midland position between the Pharisees and Paul's free grace teaching, and Paul. And he doesn't want anything to do with these Pharisees, but he's really concerned about these guys. In a very real sense, they're a little, not quite, but they're a little bit like the theological liberalism that crept into the 19th century. And it enraged people who really understood what was going on. No, this isn't too bad. Almost a form of syncretism within the. It church. is a form of syncretism. That is exactly the right word to use. Isn't he smart? He uses these big words. Syncretism. <laughs> I pay attention some of the time. You know, I know you do, and that's really that's really good. And you will do your thought paper, right? Of course. All right. Any other questions? All right. You understand what Paul's doing now? Okay. None of you understand it. Do you want me to review it? <laughs> All right. Let's look at the proof. Proof number one. Proof number one. It starts with verse 13 and goes through verse 14. It's not very long. And what he does is he goes back and he summarizes, so brief you almost miss it, but he summarizes his life before conversion. I didn't learn this free grace gospel as a Jew, a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin. For you have heard, I'm in verse 13 now, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism. It's the only time in the New Testament, here in verse 12, in verse 13, verse 14, the only time in the New Testament where Judaism is used. As a term, as a, as a term summarizing a belief. You and I talk about Judaism a lot. I mean, I, you know, don't you? I mean, you've heard that. That's a fairly common term to use. But he is, it's, it's, fair, it's a fairly unique use of this term. I shouldn't say fairly. It's a very unique use of this term. How I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. A couple of things to observe about that. First, well, three things. First is the unique use of the term Judaism. You don't see that in other parts of the New Testament. Here it is. Paul's using it to summarize the entire system of what he believed as a Jew and Pharisee, but also all that all that the, the, the law entailed, the entire lifestyle that the law entailed. And because of that, his opposition to this new entity, the church. Because he was devoted to Judaism, ipso facto, that meant he would oppose this new movement. And what does he say? I, I persecuted it. And I read from the ESV translation, he says, I persecuted it violently. And that's right. He ordered people executed. He threw hundreds of early Christians in jail. And remember, all the early Christians were Jews. So he's throwing a lot of Jews into jail who had converted to Christianity. And he says, I tried to destroy it. And you know, I think you know this, but he was going up to Damascus. He had extradition orders issued by the high priest in Jerusalem to extradite all the leaders of the church up in Damascus back to, back to Jerusalem, put them on trial. That's why he was headed up there. That's just an illustration of how committed he was. Then he uses a very, very interesting word. I was advancing 
in Judaism beyond my own age among my own people. What does he mean by that? There's a lot of discussion about that because he's summarizing his pre-conversion years in two sentences, two verses. So he's obviously wanting us to infer a lot here. But when he says I was advancing, this guy, Paul, he had devoted himself to Judaism. He had done his studies in Greco-Roman thinking and philosophy up at the University of Tarsus, which is where his home was. He was from that for his family lived. Then he had come down to Jerusalem and did additional study with the greatest rabbi in the first century, Gamaliel I. He, Gamaliel will be mentioned, he is mentioned in uh, the book of Acts. He actually, he even tests, he speaks to the Sanhedrin, but that's beside the point. So he, he's, he's, he's one of the top guys for Judaism. If you would have, let's pick a year, AD 30, if you would have been in Jerusalem and you would have looked around all these young rabbis, what's the future of Judaism? Where's the leadership going to be? You know, almost everybody would have said, it's that guy. It's that guy, Saulus Paulus. Saulus was his Hebrew name. Paulus was his, 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 his Greco-Roman name. He's the God of watch. He has a PhD from the University of Tarsus. He has a PhD from Gamaliel's first rabbi school. This guy's the future. And so that's how Paul viewed, first of all, himself. That's how others viewed him. And then he says, so extremely zealous was I. You could, you could, it, the, the Greek word to translate it zealous is right. But when he adds extremely zealous, that that adverb, it's it's the word. I was a fanatic. I was a fanatic for the traditions of my father. And of course, when you see the word tradition, immediately tevia comes to your mind. Nobody knows who Tevye is. Do Ed, Federer on the road. Did you see Topol just died? Yeah, the guy who, if you've seen Federer on the road, the movie, Topol, the guy who played, he just passed away. He lived in Israel all his life, but he just passed away really kind of tragic. He was, I mean, older man, he was in his 80s. But anyway, that has nothing to do with it, but traditions of my father's. So he's just, why does he summarize that? Why bring this into his argument? I was not taught it. Nor did I receive from him, I received from Jesus Christ. Because you certainly are going to argue that Paul received the free grace gospel in Judaism. Right? That's ludicrous. So proof number one, I didn't learn it from Judaism. As a matter of fact, I was going the opposite direction. Point number two of his proofs, of his, of his argument. It's verse 15 through verse 16, uh, verse 17. And what he's going to look at here is, and again, it's such a short summary, but his conversion. But, and, and if you, you notice that, yeah, I'm sure you know that, that's a strong word of contrast. It's an adversity, strong word of contrast. In contrast to my life in Judaism, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, let me stop here for just a moment. What does verse 15 reveal to us? An understanding by Paul of God's sovereignty, of God's providence in his life. That I met Jesus. When the Father revealed his son to me on the Damascus Road. That wasn't a coincidence. That wasn't a happenstance. That was due to two things. One, the Father had set me apart for the ministry to which I'm called now before I was born. And what Paul is doing there, you can sometimes miss this. Paul is using the language of the Old Testament. He's using the language that Jeremiah used. He used the language that Isaiah used. 
Both of those, two perhaps the greatest major prophets of the Old Testament, both, it's, it, 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 it tells us in the early parts of both those books, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were chosen before they were born to be prophets. So Paul is using exactly the same language. The Father, the Father had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Kaleo, we translate it, call, is Paul's favorite word for salvation, the call to salvation. Both of these, Paul had nothing to do with this. When he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, that had nothing to do with the law, nothing to do with circumcision, nothing to do with keeping the Sabbath, nothing to do with the feast days. It was anchored in, sourced in, and carried out by the sovereign will of Almighty God. He chose me before I was born and called me by his grace. For what purpose? To reveal his son to me. And you, that, that's the linchpin. Well, I'm going to say the linchpin. It's one of the linchpins of his defense of his officer. You know what it was like before the Damascus Road. You know what I'm like now after the Damascus Road. How do you explain that? Peter didn't do it. John didn't do it. John the Baptist didn't have anything to do with it. And I was opposed to Jesus. It was the Father revealing his son to me when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul anchors this in God's sovereignty. You certainly can't, you can't put man into this. You can't put any other teacher into this. It's God's sovereign choice of Paul. And then he adds, and I, I want to get in the middle of that. Now we'll comp- continue this. Because what follows was pleased, in verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me. What follows is a purpose clause. What was the purpose of the father revealing his son to me? That I might preach him, the son, among the Gentiles. And that's Paul's favorite reference about himself. Is I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. He'll say, Peter's an apostle to the Jews, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And so when, when, when these Judaizers are arguing, don't listen to Paul. I mean, how can he claim to be an apostle? This answers that claim. You certainly can't in any way explain Paul except the Damascus Road experience and the call of the Father upon him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But he adds, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And then he adds, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now he's dumping a lot in here. And again, I mean, this is lots of things happen. He's dumping it into a couple of key phrases, like bullet, bang, 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 it's over. But notice again what he does. My my purpose of God revealing his son to me was that I might preach him to the Gentile. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Why does he say that? Why make such a big deal out of that? Well, didn't he just get... Wasn't he just persecuting him? Yeah, to some extent, that's right. Yes. That would really have them on edge, wouldn't it? I'm sorry, say it again? That would really have them on edge, wouldn't it? Oh, very much so. Yeah, very unsettling to them. Absolutely. Fred, what were you going to say? His teaching wasn't man. Right. He is establishing, this is really central to his argument, He's establishing his independent apostolic authority. It's not dependent on any other. When he says he did not go up to Jerusalem, I mean, logically, if, if you, maybe I could try to say it that way. Logically, you would think, if this really is of God, if this really is something God wants, and he's going to be an apostle, don't you think he should go up to Jerusalem, the mother church, and sit down and have a powwow? With, I shouldn't use powwow anymore. Sit down and have a discussion with, with Peter and James and John. Don't you think he should do that? 
Don't you think they should validate what he's doing? Don't you think he should do that? I mean, I think that's logical. I mean, I would think that the very first thing that would come into Paul's mind, man, I've come, I am now commissioned by Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I want to go down and get Peter, James, and John involved in this. That's not what he does. As a matter of fact, we know it's absolutely from Acts 9. He did not go to Jerusalem. It's going to be a while till he gets down to Jerusalem. So he does not go to the apostolic. He does not go to the other apostles. He is an independently called apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's establishing that categorically. As a matter of fact, to make sure that no one misunderstands that, he tells them, I went to Arabia. Now, that's created some discussion. It is very doubtful that he's talking about Saudi Arabia. Because, you know, I mean, Damascus is way up here. If you think of, I don't have a map. Well, there is a map on page four of your notes is mine. But if you're way up in Damascus, this is where he is. I mean, Arabia is way down here in the south. It's doubtful he went. More than likely where he went. Have you ever heard of Petra? You've all heard of Petra, haven't you? That was the, that was the capital of the great Nabataean kingdom, a desert kingdom in, in what today would be Jordan, country of Jordan. But that's probably where he went, which was called Arabia. As a matter of fact, the Roman Empire called this the province of Arabia. So that's probably where he went. He didn't go all the way down the Arabian Peninsula. He went into that desert area of the Nabataean kingdom, which Rome now called the province of Arabia. So that's probably where he went. It's a desert area. There are caves and all that stuff. So why, why did he go there? I mean, a lot has happened to him. Contemplate. Yeah, contemplate, meditate. Think about what has just happened to him. Because, man, now listen, you have to. We, we just don't even, I don't think we think much about this. We really should. Here's Paul. Steeped in, in Judaism, the word he uses, he had studied under Gamaliel I, the greatest rabbi of the first century, and he, he knew the law, had vast portions of the Old Testament memorized. And now he's met Jesus, the Messiah. Right? That alone, he's met Jesus, the Messiah. Automatically, that means everything I believe has changed. Because all the prophets and all the prophetic stuff has now been fulfilled. Which means everything Daniel said, and everything Jeremiah said, everything Isaiah said, remember that great chapter 9 that we sing as a part of the Hallelujah Chorus or the, or the Messiah of Hondo and all that Christmas, you know, wonderful counselor of the mighty God. All that, he's been fulfilled. That's, a, he, that's who it is. Now he has to completely restructure his theology. He has to, to re-engineer everything. Around this proposition, Jesus is my Messiah. I think this, you and I have no idea what this meant to someone like Paul. He has to rethink everything he believed. In a sense, he has to, if Jesus is my Messiah, then everything I've taught, everything I've memorized, has to be re-engineered with this is the Messiah now. It's been fulfilled. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's 13 years between when he comes to know Christ and when he goes on the first missionary journey. That's 13 years of preparation. Now, he's very busy in ministry up in Tarsus. So this is the beginning of that. So he goes into some seclusion. And, he's, and then he comes back to Damascus. And the, the book of Acts gives us a little more detail on this in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. But for the most part, it's somewhat sketchy. We don't know a lot about. But Paul, why, Paul, why is he saying all this to us? In light of the argument he's presenting, I didn't learn this from anybody. I didn't have any contact with anybody. He's establishing his independent authority as an apostle. Called by Christ. The Father had chosen him even before he was born for this role. It's compelling because the evidence is there staring you in the face with Paul. Because some of those Judaizers would have known Paul before the Damascus Road. And now they see him. They have got some, some of them are responding, well, he's not an apostle. 
This is kind of contrived stuff. Paul's saying, no, it isn't. All right? Bob, do you have your hand up? Yeah. And that's a testament to his intelligence, too. And it's in, I really thought it was before you mentioned it was 13 years that he spent away. He's, he spent all that time in Petrum. Well, he isn't, yes, uh, well, or around, I, I, I can't prove he was actually in Petra, the Nabataean capital, but it's in that area, there's caves and all, lots of places you can hide in, there is water. There. I was just there, okay. and I wonder what, I mean, it seemed like there was less biblical significance to Petra than most of the other sites we saw. Well, there is, there's almost no biblical significance to Petra in terms of anything related to Old Testament history or New Testament, other than uh, occasional allusions to it. And Herod the Great will marry the daughter of the king of the Nabataean kingdom and steal her away and take her back to Jerusalem. But there's no there's no biblical importance of Petra or the Nabataean kingdom. I mean, in terms of any of the prophets or any of the history of the Old Testament. Uh, there are a couple instances where, like David will do that, he will conquer that area and incorporate it into the kingdom, but it doesn't have any real significance. Right. In terms of biblical, certainly not. No, no, no. And I mean, it's it's fantastic to see, but to get there, you say, man, we're going to a lot of barren desert to get there. But it's a unique. Uh, well, anyway, you you can highly explain this. Oh, yeah. Oh, you scratch in the back there, right? Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, I think that really it's too that what I see, Jim, is that we are still teachable in our station of life and in our journey of life toward heaven with the knowledge of we are receiving from this teaching and from this word, from our prayer, our asking leadership. He is there. He is there for us. We are not stagnant at where we are right now. Even you as a learned scholar of the word, I, I think that's the, the hope and, and excitement I think that we have in front of us that he will continue to teach us who we he ne- is. Yeah, and yet we never stop learning or growing in our walk with the Lord until we die. No, I mean, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's what's exciting about uh, the Christian faith, in my view. You never, ever, ever stop learning. You always learn something new. You always get a new insight about God or a new insight about His His grace. That uh, oh wow, or we're just we are constantly in need of being reminded of these truths. I know that doesn't happen to you, but occasionally we forget, and we need to be reminded. Fred doesn't ever forget anything, but we do. A lot of us need to be reminded of things. And that's the importance of study. That's important for getting getting into the Word with rich, which the richness and completeness that the Word of God gives to our faith. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It really is. Then he goes to his third proof. And now he's a little, little more specific here. I'm in verse 18. Then, after three years. This is the visit to Jerusalem that's mentioned in Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and following. So after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Who's that? Peter. For reasons that are a little unclear, Paul chooses to use the Aramaic of Peter. The Aramaic of Peter is Cephas. It, it, why he is that, it's not clear, but he does. A couple of times in the New Testament, Peter is referred to as Petros, Peter, or as Simon. Peter is his Greco-Roman name. Simon is his Jewish name, Simon Peter. But in Aramaic, it's, it's Cephas, it's, it's Peter. And so he says... I went to Jerusalem, again, I believe this is the Acts 9, verse 36 visit, to visit Peter. Why do you think he's specific in saying after three years? That's not a hard question. It's not a trick question. It's just 
but it took three years till he meets Peter. I mean, his independent apostolic authority, I don't meet Peter for three years. That's kind of an important piece of information, isn't it? That's kind of a, a significant insight into this chronology. And I was there for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, was the one who wrote the book. We're going to be studying as we get into chapter 3 together. Except the Lord's mother. I am writing to you before God. I do not lie. <laughs> He's just suspecting that some of his critics may not believe him. Three years? Come on, Paul. <laughs> You're fudging out. You're using evangelistic ears, aren't you? You know what evangelistic years? You exaggerate for the glory of the kingdom. <laughs> four people showed up. You say 26 people came. Only four. Well, that's evangelistic. You know, I'm just trying to get people excited about the word. That's not evangelistic numbers. This, he said, I'm not lying. This is what happened. No, let's let's start. Because it's only this visit is only summarized in two verses. There are three verses. One of them is a parenthesis. I'm lying. Tiny two. How should we think about this? What, what's the importance of him sharing this information with us? What, no, I hope you understand what I mean by this question. What inferences should we draw from this? Three years later, I went down to visit Peter. And by the way, I also saw Jane, who by this time is kind of the head of the Jerusalem church. I saw those two guys. Oh, by the way, I only stayed for 15 days. First of all, 15 days is not a long time to learn and develop a brand new theology. And second, what's the implication? What's the inference we should draw? That Peter and James agree with what Paul was teaching. Isn't that a legitimate inference to draw? He, I, I went up to saw, see Peter three years later and spent 15 days with him. And you, listen, Peter had six things that he disagreed with me about. And he gives you the six bullets. He disagreed with me on this. But we don't read that. Oh, James, when I met James, when you should have heard James, he started to rail against me because he did not think I had the right to preach a free grace gospel. James, the head of the Jerusalem church, is the brother of Jesus. He, he emphasized to me the importance of circumcision. He emphasized to me the importance of keeping the Sabbath. You read that? You don't read that. So the implication is they agreed with what I was teaching. Because certainly in these 15 days, what? let's use our creative imagination. I think we can legitimately do that every now and then. Let's use our creative imagination. Paul enters Jerusalem and meets Peter, and they go to Starbucks and sit down and have a cup of coffee together. And Peter would say, Paul, tell me, I've heard what happened to you. Tell me what happened on Damascus Road. And so Paul explains in detail. Paul, why didn't you come down to visit me right after you met Jesus? Why didn't you wait for three years? What? Don't you think that's what he would ask you? Paul, You've been up there in Damascus. You've been ministering. You've been serving. It's a, as we'll read, that's what he was doing. Tell me what you've been teaching. What have you been saying about Jesus? Paul would have launched in. This is one of the things I've been doing, Peter. It's so exciting. I take Isaiah 53, that great suffering servant passage, and I show precisely everything Jesus did in fulfilling that. Oh, good, Paul. Real good. Oh, by the way, Paul, are you reminding people to be circumcised? I don't think Peter would ask that. Paul, Paul, are you telling people to keep the Sabbath? Are you still doing that, Paul? I don't think Peter would ask that. You see, their discussion would have centered around Jesus and the gospel. Because remember how much Jesus changed Peter. And Jesus changed Paul. They would have been sharing in the excitement of the transformation probably shared, they would have sat down and they would have both, both knew the Old Testament. 
They would have been sharing new covenant passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Now Jesus fulfilled all that. We're in the new covenant now. The Spirit has come. What was promised in the Old Testament is now fulfilled. Jesus had all the excitement of that. And then James would have come along. By, by this time, they, they, they went out to Olive Garden for a meal. <laughs> and they're sharing a meal together now. And all of them ordered pork. <laughs> and that's a joke, but it was just getting you awake. But I mean, and they would have been sharing all of these exciting things. There is absolutely no record that they disagreed with what Paul was teaching. And so for these critics of Paul, these Judaizers, this is very important. I met Peter. I met James. And the inferences, they didn't disagree with anything I was doing. That's pretty important. Jim, that affirmation uh, that they had amongst themselves, that was important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the clarity, and we'll see this in Chapter 2, the clarity of the roles. Peter understood he was an apostle to the Jews. Paul understood he's an apostle to the Gentiles. They understood that. They each had a different emphasis and a different focus. Same gospel, different group. And so in contextualization, what Paul will say to the Gentiles is going to be different than what Peter says to the Jews. Same message, but how they apply. How they help their, the people whom they're ministering to think about this. You go into a Greco-Roman city and start saying, Jesus is the Messiah. They'll look at you and say, what does that mean? What do you mean by Jesus is the Messiah? I don't even know what you're talking about. First of all, I never heard of Jesus. I don't even know what Messiah means. You're using uh, some word. Is that Hebrew? I don't even know what that means. And then you just read the 13 epistles of Paul. You get the sense of what he's doing. He's talking to Greco-Roman people. He's going to have the same gospel message but a different approach. Context determines what you say. The message is the same. So now what he does, it's 1230, so let me get through. I thought I had the ideal that we'd get through chapter 2 today, but that's not going to happen. So look at verse 20. Woody, did you have a question? One more interruption, yes. Um, The Gentiles wouldn't have known anything about the Old Testament, would they? No. No. He could, so he couldn't make reference to to what had happened in the Old Testament and was accomplished by Jesus to the That's right. Okay. To a Greco-Roman person, that would have been a meaningless thing to do. Okay. And so you look just an example, Woody, you look at Acts chapter 17, where Paul is at in Athens, he's speaking to the philosophers there in the Areopagus. What does he do? Three times he quotes from Greek philosophers. Why does he do that? Because that's his audience. And then he starts talking about Jesus in the context of his quotations of three Greek philosophers. Paul was brilliant. He knew exactly how to take the message and make it applicable to people of very different ethnic and and cultural backgrounds. That's something you and I have to be sensitive to. That we make sure we understand the audience whom we're speaking to. Yes, that was a good question, Woody. Now, if I could, let me finish uh, chapter 1. It would be a great achievement to me if I could get through chapter 1. God would be very pleased with this. Let's see if we can do it. In verse 21 through 24, it's his fourth proof. What he's going to do now is he's going to talk about the next almost 11 years, 12, uh, uh, 10 to 11 years. He's up in Syria and Cilicia. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, if you're using in your map on page four, you see where it is. It would be the very southeastern part of modern-day Turkey. You can visualize that on the map if you don't have the map in front of you. That's red sense. But that's where he's going back home because this is home. And by the Sirius Silesia, that was a the Roman province. It was Sirius slash Silesia. You go to Sirius here, Silesia here. They were one province. So Paul's going back home. He's going back to Tarsus, university town, very uh, prosperous town. And so he's back there. And I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us 
is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That's really important. Man, that, that's, that's really, 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 really important. <laughs> because Paul is going to be up. Paul is going to be up here in Syria, Cilicia, from A.D. 37 to A.D. 47, a little over 10 years. He had been three years down in Damascus in that area. Now, the next 10 years he's up here. We don't know anything that happened to him, except that he's preaching and teaching the Word of God. Okay, so this is what I'm going to be doing for the next 10 years. But what does he add? I never went to Judea. I never went to the churches down there. But the churches down in Judea, they heard about what I was preaching. They heard that this is the guy who used to persecute us. Now he's preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then verse 24, and they doubted everything that Paul taught, everything about his life, and everything about his transformation. Isn't that what verse 24 says? Thank you, three of you are paying attention. And they glorified God because of me. How is that an important proof of Paul's apostolic authority and role? The mother church, the mother region, where Christianity was born, they approve what I'm doing. Now, to me, when I, you know, years and years and years ago, when I first studied this and understood what Paul was doing, I thought, man, that's a pretty compelling piece of evidence. That the churches, because remember, Jerusalem's in Judea, that whole area, they do not oppose me, they're not criticizing me. What are they doing? They're glorifying God because of me. What's the implication? They approve of what I'm doing, they approve of me, they approve of the message. How dare you Judaizers doubt what I'm doing? That's what we should do. That's what they should do. Oh, my goodness, we made a mistake. Paul really is sent by Jesus. That's not what they're going to do, by the way. But Paul's offering the proof. And this is very compelling. The mother church in Judea, all the, that whole area where the church was born, they're glorifying the Lord because of it. And this was in a... In a short enough time frame, oh, yeah. that they would certainly have remembered Saul, the persecutor, and and then to see the diametric Because this is the heart of Paul's persecution in Judea. I mean, you're right. I mean, this, this is the guy. He threw me in prison. He killed my mom. Now I'm so excited. He's up in up in Tarsus teaching about Jesus to these Gentiles up there. Wow, that's fantastic. How you and I should be excited when people go out and represent Christ. I know you're about I'm 80 years old. I've heard a lot of sermons. I thought you were 50. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I saw and all that. What I always wondered was, if they knew this, that what Paul was going to become before he was even born, why did they wait so long as he was saw all the damage he did before on the road to Damascus, where they finally, uh, you know, Change him. I couldn't have a why they waited so long. You mean, when you say they, you mean God, in exactly. effect. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to have to ask the Lord when you get to heaven, because I don't know that exactly. But I, I think there's one little insight we have. When Paul meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, just think of all his training and all of his preparation. Even before, because he says in the language in the language of, uh, of verse 15, he set me apart before I was born. So what does that mean? That means when, God, when, when Paul was conceived in his mother's womb as an embryo and begins to grow, does God know who that is? Does God assign him already? This is what I have for this man. And so God's sitting up there and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are talking and they're saying, now, how do we prepare this guy? He's going to be the first apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I'm making this up, but just pretend. And so the son says to the father, you know what? We've got to make sure he's really trained in Greco-Roman philosophy. 
and Greco-Roman way of thinking, the Greco-Roman lifestyle. Good, good idea. Let's make sure he goes to the University of Tarsus and gets his PhD there. And the Holy Spirit says, but Father, he's a, he's a Jew. He's born in a Jewish family. He's got to be. He's got to be able to talk like a Jew. He's got to be able to. Okay, I know the Holy Spirit says we want to send him to Gamaliel the first rabbi school down there in Jerusalem. Good idea. Okay. Now the other thing we want to do is we want to get this guy so excited about about religious religiosity. Let's make sure he gets zealous and excited about. The Old Testament law about the, about Judaism. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, let's get it excited. And by the way, it's going to mean he's going to have to get this zeal has to turn into persecution of the church. That's all right. The blood seedbed of the church is, is the blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian would say. That's okay because that's going to help deepen people's faith. And when all those things come together, his training in Greco-Roman philosophy, his training in Judaism at Galileo School, and his zeal. All of that is going to coalesce. He's going to meet Jesus in the mask. Then he's ready. But we've got to give him 13 more years to get his act together. And that's what Paul's telling us. So in my view, and that was true in my life, and it's probably true in a lot of your guys. When I came into the Lord Jesus in 1972 and really committed my life to him in 1973, God had been preparing me for all this. I, I can look back on my life because I did not want anything to do with Christ. Like not at all. But I looked. At, I look back, and I remember what God did, where He sent me to school, how He prepared me. So then, when I started in my theological training, all this meshed together. God knew what He was doing, and in every one of your lives, He knows what He's doing. Whenever you came to faith in Christ, before and after is continuing God's work in your life. So the Father knew what He was doing in choosing Jesus. Excuse me, choosing Paul to reveal His Son Jesus. He had been preparing him. And that, that, that gives me great confidence. As Paul said, from, from my mother's room, the father called me. God knows what he's doing in each one of our lives. And at the right time, at the right time, everything comes together in the divine plan. I know, doesn't, isn't that exciting? That God really knows what he's doing. Because sometimes I wake up in the morning and I turn on the news, which is never a good thing to do, but I turn on the news after I go back from the fitness center and turn it on and I think, oh, my goodness, why am I watching this? Because despair, things are hopeless. And I always say, Lord, you did notice that, didn't you? You you were aware that's going on. Yes, that's Jim. I got it under control. It's happening for a purpose. Okay, that's my answer to your question. Thank you. You with me? Let's start chapter two. I had the idea of finishing chapter two by today. Then after 14 years, the discussion there is what's the reference point? 14 years after what? It seems reasonable that it's 14 years after his conversion, 14 years after he meets Christ. And that would include his three years, his meeting Christ and all that, his three years uh, in Damascus and Arabia and all that stuff, and then going up to Tarsus. And so we're, we're now at this point where he has been called by, and you've got to go, you've got to go to Acts uh, uh, the end of 12 into 13 to see this. The Antioch church is growing. They need new leaders. And remember, Barnabas has an idea. Remember what Barnabas says? I'm going to go get Paul. And he goes up to Tarsus and brings Paul back. And Paul becomes a leader in the Antiochian church. So all that has occurred before verse 1 of chapter 2. So Paul has just skipped a whole bunch of time. Because he, he does not explain to us in the book of Acts. You don't find out anything he's doing up in Acts except we know he was in ministry. Fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Now, again, I'm hoping you're with me. This includes the three years he was in Arabian and stuff, plus his ten years in Tarsus, plus almost a year serving in the Antiochian church. 
because Barnabas is the one who called him. Now he's in Antioch. He's, a, he's, he's called in the book of Acts an episcopos, an elder in Antioch, and taking Titus along with me. Who's Titus? Okay, I obviously didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. Who's Titus? If you don't know specifics, have you ever heard of him before? Yeah, he's a young short, believer. Short letter. Yeah. Got a little Bible, got a little book. Thank you the Bible. Here to Revelation. Yeah. All right, the guys online are answering my question. The guys in the room aren't answering my question. That's all right. You guys online are paying attention. I think these guys are paying attention, but that's good. Yeah, no, you can count Titus. on us. <laughs> yeah, yes. Thank you, Woody. Titus is, Titus is a key disciple of Paul, and he writes a book. Paul writes a book called Titus. Remember that? Okay. So this is a key guy. Is Titus a Jew or a Greek? He's a Greek. This is an important piece of information. Fourteen years after my conversion, I'm a leader in the Antiochian church. Barnabas and I go down to Jerusalem, and Titus goes with us. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seem influential. That revelation is what's referenced in Acts 11. It was a vision from Agabus. Now, I know you, that doesn't mean much to you. I'm just saying we can connect what's in chapter 2 of, of Galatians with Acts 11. We connect those two. This is that vision Agabus had. And so he said, that's why we went to Jerusalem. And he said, privately before those who seemed influential, who's that? Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, those influential. This is what's sometimes called the famine visit. There's a tremendous famine going on in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's very hard on the church. People do not have enough to eat. And Paul is taking help with Barnabas and Titus down to those people. <clears throat> Set before them the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So I'm going up to the influential ones in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, and I'm going to share with them the gospel, specifically that I'm teaching, to make sure that I'm not doing anything that, that they disapprove of. And I want to hit one more thing before we stop. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Though he was a Greek. Why would he share that? Why would he tell, tell this part of the narrative in a defense of his apostleship, in a defense of his free grace gospel? Why would he interject this? It's a comment to the Judaizers, right? Yeah, exactly. If circumcision is necessary for a complete salvation and complete sanctification, what should Peter That Titus be circumcised. Paul, you're bringing this Greek, this Greco-Roman guy, down to Jerusalem. And you are saying he has become a Christian. Good. we got to have him circumcised. What does he tell us? They did not force Titus to be circumcised. Again, I've got to stop there. What's the inference? Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Circumcision is not necessary for sanctification. Because if it were, either one of those, Peter, James, and John, the influential ones, would have insisted that I circumcise Titus. But they didn't. That's another zing at the Judaizers. I'm representing Jesus and the true free grace gospel. They're not. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation or sanctification. Now, if you want to know what else happens at this famine visit of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, you got to come back next week. Okay. I like to create some excitement about the next class, but I don't know if I succeeded in doing that. But anyway, well, 
I can't believe the class is over already, but we're, we're getting started with Paul's defense of his apostolic authority and his free grace gospel message. Got it? Got it online? Got it. Okay, good. Thank you. What do you speak for the group? You're like Peter speaking for the group. He does. He speaks for all of us. That's right. All right. I'm going to pray here and let you, because I've got to get going to the next study here. Father, thank you for, oh, thank you for Paul. Thank you for your, your saving Paul in the Damascus Road. He told us um, wonderfully that even in his mother womb, his mother's womb, you had chosen him. Lord, you'd chosen him for a very specific purpose, to be the apostle of the Gentiles. You trained and prepared him. Even before you met Jesus, you were training and equipping and preparing him for the phenomenal impact he would have in the ancient world. Oh, Lord, that's true for every single one of us. We are part of your plan. We're part of your purposes. We each, each have a role to play. Each have a job to do, whatever that might be. However, seemingly innocuous and insignificant, it is not insignificant. No matter how old we are, no matter what we are doing, if we're drawing breath, you still have something for us to do. And we still are to be representatives of you in this dark, dark world in which we live. Thank you for individuals like Paul, whom you raised up and, and changed the course of human history because they proclaimed the message of the gospel. Thank you, too, for this very clear defense that Paul's making of his apostolic authority and of his message, the free grace gospel of Jesus. That still applies today. We represent you. Help us to represent you well as strong men of faith, men who depend on you, men who are seeking to speak and to act as the transformed beings that you indeed are doing in each one of our lives. We are in the process of being transformed in the image of Jesus. So help us to be your salt and light to this world. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.